This is The Global Gambit. In The Global Gambit podcast, we focus on the big picture of geopolitics, foreign policy and current affairs. Each episode, your host, Piotr Kurzin, brings you interviews and panels with top-tier academics, journalists and policymakers. Seeking to make sense of the news, go beyond what's presented to us and question and critically analyse these matters. This is The Global Gambit. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome back to another episode of The Global Gambit. It's Piotr speaking as normal, and in the past week since the recording of this episode, uh, there's been quite a few developments in the case of Ukraine, uh, notably the um, explosion that happened on the bridge connecting Crimea to mainland Russia, of which the, uh, the perpetrators, the cause of that remains disputed, it remains rather unclear. And since a disproportionate and unjustifiable indiscriminate attack by uh, the Kremlin across the entirety of Ukraine, which uh, resulted in several casualties and deaths, um, and illustrates the extent to which Putin is willing to go to to make his point um, or escalate the, the conflict or to continue this sort of idea of to escalate, to de-escalate sort of mentality. As part of that, he's also used the threat of nuclear warfare again, and something that has been lingering in the back of many people's minds, predominantly, of course, the Ukrainians uh, and broader Europe, uh, but also policymakers across the globe uh, in here in DC, but also in Europe. To discuss these themes and more, uh, I'm joined by a fantastic panel of people who are, frankly, absolutely ridiculously expertise uh, in, in this line of work. Uh, firstly, uh, Dr. Stephen Herzog, uh, someone who I had the pleasure of meeting uh, last year. Uh, he's a senior research at the ETH Zurich Center for Security Studies, or CSS Zurich, uh, as well as an associate of Harvard University's project on managing the atom. Uh, he's previously worked for the Federation of American Scientists as a think tanker uh, and then a, new, new, a nuclear arms control verification official at the U.S. Department of Energy. Uh, he's got a PhD in political science from Yale. We're jo- he's joined by Dr. Nicole Gorodzewski. I hope I said that right. Gorodzewski. I think I said that wrong. Apologies. Is a state, uh, Staten Nuclear Security Postdoctoral Fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School uh, Belfast Center for Science and International Affairs. Uh, and she's also a scholar of Russian foreign policy, uh, holding a PhD in international relations from the University of Oxford. Uh, and lastly, joining us is Dr. Alexander Bolfras, uh, who's working as a senior research also at CSS uh, Zurich, uh, holding a PhD in security studies from Princeton and previously working on uh, nuclear issues at Harvard's uh, project on managing the atom as well, uh, alongside um, at the Stimson Center and the Arms Control Association in D.C., so quite the array of dentures we have here with us, and I feel very, um, very insecure already. But um, thank you, everybody, so much for joining us. I'm thoroughly looking forward to this um, difficult, but I think very necessary conversation. So uh, I think maybe, Stephen, jumping to you first, because you helped to uh, arrange this uh, conversation, and then maybe we can go to Nicole uh, and Alex after that. But I was wondering if you could speak to us a little bit, give us a bit of context. What is the actual situation on the ground in the sense of current status of global nuclear weaponry, stockpiles amongst different countries, um, the existing treaties, the ones that have been discontinued? Um, just could you give us a very brief overview of, of the sort of nuclear scene, so to speak? Yeah, so thanks very much, uh, Piotr, for hosting this space. Uh, and thanks as well, uh, Michael, for being here. I'm really delighted to be here and to have everyone uh, as well as uh, Nicole and Alex uh, joining in today. And I think it's, you know, there, there's a lot of context here. 
to un- unpack. And one of the things that is important to mention from the beginning that uh, uh, Piotr got at is we have seen uh, in the past nuclear arms control treaties between the United States uh, and the Russian Federation. And we have seen those treaties uh, unravel, many of them, uh, over the past several years. We saw uh, the Trump administration withdraw from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty of 1987 between the United States and Russia, uh, citing Russian violations of the treaty. We saw the George W. Bush administration uh, at a certain point pull out of the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, which limited ballistic missile defenses uh, between the United States and Russia, which in the world of deterrence theory uh, was generally seen in some level as stabilizing. So we have in the world right now the United States and Russia with more than 90% of the world's nuclear weapons. There are about 12,700 nuclear weapons in the world. More than 90% of those uh, are between are held between the United States and Russia. Um, and there's one standing treaty between them, the New Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, uh, which was agreed to uh, in 2010, limits the sides to 1,550 uh, deployed strategic nuclear warheads, Uh, Both sides uh, are currently abiding by those treaties at the strategic level, but the real focus uh, in recent days uh, with Putin's nuclear threats has gone to these tactical nuclear weapons, uh, the so-called nuclear weapons to be uh, used on the battlefield. And we have other experts here today that can talk about them, uh, and I can too. Uh, But in general, Russia has approximately 2,000 of these tactical nuclear weapons. I think the estimated number is around uh, somewhere between 1850 and 1920, if you believe uh, the open sources. And the United States is estimated to maintain around 200 uh, air-delivered tactical nuclear gravity bombs in Europe. So the situation that we have now right now is a very interesting one uh, in which we have a country, Russia, that has nearly 2,000 tactical nuclear weapons, uh, which has made nuclear deterrent threats facing down a nuclear alliance, NATO, which has U.S. tactical nuclear weapons in Europe, as well as the nuclear armed states of France and the U.K. So it is is quite an interesting situation. And I think there's a lot that we can talk about, about why Putin has been making such threats. Is Putin intending to deter direct Western intervention in the conflict in Ukraine? Is Putin aimed these nuclear threats at Ukraine itself? Is Putin trying to stop uh, Western military supplies? Uh, And so it's all very interesting uh, and a very difficult and very tense situation. So that would be kind of some of the lay of the land uh, that I would give for some some background context. And just to add uh, that many of these so-called tactical nuclear weapons designed for battlefield use actually have explosive yields, which are possibly significantly larger than the weapons that were used against Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. So not a situation uh, to be taken lightly. No, absolutely, it isn't. So, Nicole, just coming to you, is there anything you'd like to build on from what Stephen said? Any Anything that you think is important to, to underline, so to speak? Well, I think what's also important is to, well, thank, first of all, thank you so much for having me, and it's great to be here to discuss this. Um, And thank you for putting this all together. I think it's important to also look at the domestic context within Russia and kind of their internal threat perceptions or the way that they're understanding the situation. 
obviously Russia has expressed like a litany of Western grievances that range from issues with missile defense, as Stephen mentioned, but also with um, internal interference, especially with the color revolutions. They, they love to propagate this rhetoric. But right now what we're seeing, especially within uh, domestic political circles within Russia, is this hardening around this kind of retrenchment towards much more of an assertive policy that has been accompanied by rhetoric that is quite quite uh, threatening, but also um, concerning when it comes to these nuclear weapons. And so one of the things that happened with the annexation of four Ukrainian provinces uh, was the extension of Russia's doctrine on nuclear deterrence. Or it, they had a strategy that came out in 2020 in January that outlined their basic principles when it came to nuclear deterrence. And, and part of that included existential threats to the Russian homeland. And it seems from the speeches that we've, uh, from Putin's speeches, but also from Telegram accounts and tweets from Russian officials that they intend on uh, viewing that, extending that to Ukrainian territory, which is not internationally recognized as part of Russia, but Russia claims it's their own. So there's a lot of things that are going on internally that I think are shaping this. And and one of the things also what I, I'd like to note is how Russian officials, especially those closest to Putin, have been very reticent to kind of express any kind of criticism or any kind of misgivings when it comes to the conduct of this war or the way that it's been handled. And I think that you can see some things within the Russian press is uh, Sergei Shoigu, who is the defense minister, has been facing far more criticism from uh, parts of the pro-Russian, uh, pro-Putin media establishment. And that partly might be because there, he, he has expressed his reservations behind the scenes or partly because there's been this perception that maybe Shoigu is not completely on board with a lot of this rhetoric. So th- there's a lot of things that are going on. And it's quite difficult to really determine what um, the kind of the schisms within the elite at the moment. But there, I think that underneath, you, we might see some more things happening in the future. So, um, Alex, just coming to you, you've got a, a bit of a background in sort of assessing how well intelligence agencies perform in assessing other countries' programs, right? So, um, and this sort of leads me into the, to the second question related to that, which is, and if you want to build on what the, um, the other two have shared, um, but what's the perception in the West of Russia's capabilities when it comes to its nuclear stockpile, its usage? From what I understand, the Russian process to, shall we say, get ready to launch the nukes or prime them, so to speak, is, is, is quite complex and a little bit different to the West. So I was wondering if you could uh, provide any insights into that and any other, any other thoughts you wanted to share. Gladly. And also thanks for inviting me and thanks for everyone who's tuning into this uh, to, to listen to uh, our thoughts on this topic. Uh, so the, the intelligence picture that the West has of Russia as a whole is pretty good. One indication of that is just how early uh, the United States understood that Russia was not bluffing uh, in the lead up to to this war, or sort of the, the re-escalation of the Russian war against Ukraine. Um, we also know uh, that the American intelligence picture on Russian strategic nuclear weapons is quite good because it's exactly that intelligence that has allowed uh, the United States and Russia and before that, the United States and the Soviet Union, to enter into the types of arms control agreements that Stephen laid out uh, before. Uh, The big strategic nuclear weapons uh, that are strategic because they can reach, say, from Russia all the way into the United States are visible from space for the most part, right? They are deployed on large, heavy bombers um, that you can observe 
whether they are still standing uh, in in their hangars or are idling on the runway or have taken off. Uh, these are missiles in the field uh, that can be tracked by satellite, and these are, uh, of course, much harder to see uh, submarines that hide out in the ocean and would fire their strategic nuclear weapons from there. Uh, so we regularly get public reporting from both the United States and the Russians uh, on whether they believe that the other side is abiding by the arms control agreements that they made about these weapons. Uh, and so generally, we can believe that if either side were to prepare itself for a strategic nuclear use, uh, that the intelligence would give a pretty quick and accurate picture. It's a fundamentally different situation for these tactical nuclear weapons. And you'll notice that when Stephen laid out the history of arms control agreements, there's never been an arms control agreement about tactical nuclear weapons. And that's because they are simply too small uh, to track reliably. Uh, there's been some interesting research uh, about how that might be done in the future. Uh, but for the most part, the kind of intelligence methods you are kind of left with is monitoring the, the bases uh, at which the nuclear warheads are stored in Russia. And so the kind of indications that the West would be looking for is if you started to see a bunch of movement of uh, nuclear uh, warheads, or, I mean, you would see the warheads themselves, but you would start to see trucks, trains moving from, uh, from these bases, these object S sites, as they're known in Russia, uh, to be uh, mated with, uh, with the missiles that are forward deployed in the fight there. Thank you for that. Yeah, and, and coming back to you, Stephen, so what you uh how much are you on on the sort of alignment with um with alex there i know you guys published a very important article um uh, titled the war in ukraine and global global nuclear order which was published in um survival uh journal um that's produced by the international institute of strategic studies in london um and there you're you know you're positing this uh this idea that you know uh, we're in a particularly tumultuous time driven by sort of challenges of individual proliferators, so to speak. And, uh, and what we've seen in the recent years over the US and Russia, basically turning their back on international treaties, um, particularly what under the Trump administration and, and the tense uh, times there. So I'm wondering if you could go into that a little bit um, and sort of this, this stalling we're seeing towards disarmament more broadly. Yeah, absolutely. And I would just um, add to what Alex said. You know, when Alex uh, said that arms control uh, agreements haven't covered tactical nuclear weapons. That is true. There have not been formal treaties and verification regimes. There was a period um, in the early 1990s and uh, uh, after the end of the Cold War when Gorbachev, Bush won, um, Yeltsin and Clinton made unilateral pledges that we refer to as the presidential nuclear initiatives. Uh, and what those did, they were unilateral pledges that resulted in the elimination of tens of thousands of different uh, tactical nuclear weapons and various classes of nuclear weapons. But we have not been able to have verifiable nuclear arms control limiting these types of nuclear weapons. And so the strategic context, absolutely, but the tactical, no, and they still uh, remain a problem for European security um, in particular. And as far as the arms control context, 
You know, a lot of people, when they think about this, we have we can talk about the bilateral nuclear arms control treaties between the United States and Russia that people are familiar with, SALT and START and INF. But there's also multilateral treaties. And the you know cornerstone of multilateral treaties is the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty of 1968, which entered into force in, in 1970. So it had its, its 50th birthday uh, just uh, just a few years ago. And the NPT, as it is in the acronym, uh, essentially says that countries that join the treaty uh, can't have nuclear weapons uh, except for the P5 in the UN Security Council. And the members of the P5 have to move in the direction of nuclear disarmament. And this has been very controversial in recent years. In the past, the United States uh, and Russia have made the case that their efforts under bilateral nuclear arms control were fulfilling their NPT Article 6 disarmament obligations. But in recent years, uh, that has come under scrutiny as some of the arms control uh, has slowed. Uh, And so right now, what we see um, is we see that efforts towards arms control, for the most part, uh, have been replaced by competition. Uh, The CIA believes that China, uh, whose nuclear arsenal is somewhere between two and 300 nuclear weapons, maybe 350, uh, is going to rise to become 1,000. Open source intelligence analysts have uh, detected what they believe are additional Chinese ballistic missile silos. Uh, Vladimir Putin has announced in recent years a series of innovative nuclear weapon systems uh, designed to evade U.S. ballistic missile defenses. And the Obama administration, when it passed through New START, made a deal with Republicans uh, in Congress in the United States, uh, essentially that they would carry out a what will looks like a, a trillion dollar or more plan to modernize nuclear weapons. Uh, so even though the NPT commits these states to nuclear disarmament, uh, even though people like President Obama, when he was early on in his term in Prague, committed to essentially pursue a world without nuclear weapons, we now again have seen disarmament slowing. And what we really are seeing is nuclear competition. So thank you, Stephen, for that point. Um, and you mentioned China, which I think is very interesting because, as you say, in the past year particularly, I think there's been satellite imagery and a fair amount of information suggesting that they're shifting away from their policy of minimal deterrence um, or minimum deterrence um, uh, because they sort of feel the need to have more weaponry, nuclear weaponry, to sort of be considered one of the big boys, at least in the nuclear context. Um, but uh, from what I understand, the Chinese attitude to to nuclear weaponry is quite different to that of the West as well as uh, as that of the Russians. And Nicole, this is where I was hoping you could comment a little bit, which is from the Russian psyche. How do they look at weaponry uh, of this magnitude? How do they look at nuclear sort of usage historically towards the Cuban Missile Crisis, the the close calls that we've gotten into potentially reaching Armageddon? Um, Could you just take us through a little bit the Russian mentality when it comes to nuclear warfare or nuclear weaponry? Yeah, of course. Um, Actually, Dima Adamski wrote an excellent book on this um, about the Russian nuclear orthodoxy. But um, I mean, it is important to note that today is or today there are many events that are about the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So in some ways, there's a lot of parallels to the past. But for Russia in general, I think that nuclear weapons have been very important for its own status and perception of itself as a great power. 
it's been Russia's coveted this kind of status and kind of the ability to engage in bilateral arms control on some level of parity with the United States. And it's if you look at the context in the 1990s when Russia was economically going through all this hardship, when internally there was uh, it was rampant chaos, Russia was still able to claimed some kind of semblance of great power status through the possession of nuclear weapons. It also gives Russia quite a bit of leeway in global affairs. Uh, it, it makes Russia, I mean, I think from what I've known from, from the elite understanding of it, is that nu- nuclear wor- weapons kind of affirm Russia's importance in global affairs. And also for Russia, Russia is a major energy supplier um, or nuclear energy supplier. It has a lot of technological expertise when it comes to that. In the 90s, when the Russian economy was going through a lot of chaos, the nuclear energy sector was also going through that. And kind of through Vladimir Putin and through like the reforms internally in Russia, there had been this strengthening of the nuclear industry. And Russia still provides most of the nuclear fuel in the world, including to Western countries. So there's that element where it's very economic based when it comes to civilian nuclear energy, but it's also perceptual and it has to do with its great power status. And of course, I think what is quite evident is that Russia's view of nuclear weapons also relates to its security. And I think what we're seeing in Ukraine is Russian conventional weakness. And this is despite the 2008 military reforms that were supposed to really build up the Russian uh, conventional capacity. But now we're seeing that this is maybe this is not Russian success in Syria was not necessarily reflective of these reforms. So nuclear weapons has an additional importance, and that's where conventional weakness can be offset by the possession of nuclear weapons. And I think I think there's multiple dimensions to this. And there's a lot of motifs within the Russian um, elite discourse that have to do with its role as an enforcer of the nonproliferation regime. Russia does, uh, sometimes, even though it does diverge from the United States on certain interpretations, Russia still has a vested interest in maintaining a kind of ma- remaining in these kind of circles but, that have to do with the, the future of the nuclear order. And so it, it's multidimensional. And I think just reducing it to security sometimes misses how it has economic sides to it and how it has perceptual sides to it and how it also has stuff to do with Russian identity. And so I think that that, that in some is kind of broad overview of how the Russians tend to view nuclear weapons. When it comes to something as severe as as nuclear weaponry, or just nuclear, just in a sort of a a functionary sense, just for nuclear reactors, uh, the Russians do treat it quite seriously. Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, I know Putin is leveraging it around at the moment, but sort of there is a lot of, at least from the people I speak to and listen to here in DC and, and also places like Brussels or London, there is a sense that it's still... Uh, and people still feel that the probability is is low but i just wanted to maybe dive a little bit more alex maybe if you wanted to chime in on this given the circumstances we're in which is severely unprecedented putin is really up against the wall he's you know we can make uh, assertions about whether or not it was self-sabotage over the Nord Stream pipeline or the bridge but generally speaking you know russia is in a is in a pretty dire way on the battlefield in ukraine uh, and it's clear that they're trying to find ways to sort of strike fear into the Ukrainians or do something to illustrate, hey, we're still a very you know, uh, potent force to deal with. How do you view Russia's general behaviour in, in, in the context of the Ukraine war, uh, particularly in the past few months uh, and sort of with the mass mobilisation and other things that they've been doing? Is, is, it, is it different or is it still a case of puffing out your chest and sort of all talk and no show, so to speak? Or all hat and no cattle, as they might say in certain parts of the United States. <laughs> yes. No, it's it's 
a really troubling development. Um, the the war itself, in addition to to some of the rather irresponsible rhetoric, as well as the behavior around Ukrainian nuclear power plants. Um, one thing that's that's unprecedented about it, and why, you know, as much as we want to look back at the Cuban Missile Crisis and want to draw really crisp lessons from it and apply it today, is that fundamentally Russia is not the Soviet Union, uh, for better and for worse. And that has a couple of kind of implications. Uh, one is that so much of the really solid thinking about nuclear deterrence theory that built itself up alongside uh, the development of arsenals during the early part of the Cold War, uh, you know, kind of the, the legendary works by, by Thomas Schelling and others, was purpose-built to understand and describe the behavior of the Soviet Union and the United States, both of which were at that time status quo powers. And so a lot of the sort of conventional thinking on nuclear weapons that came out of it is that nuclear weapons are fantastic for defending your core interests, and that's deterrence. Nuclear weapons are not supposed to be good at coercing others. They're not supposed to be good at taking territory. And so what, what the Russians are doing at the moment is really challenging the fundamentals of a lot of assumptions that we have about nuclear weapons. and. You know, it's kind of unclear how well that is actually going uh, at the moment. And, you know, maybe to kind of bring it down to something really concrete here, and that sort of goes back to these tactical nuclear weapons that, that have been talked about, and kind of consider some of their military implications, as well as how that interacts with the political situation. Uh, so the, the big fans, or the biggest fans that you ever had of tactical nuclear weapons was the United States Army of the 1950s. Uh, the army built insane amounts of small nuclear weapons, forward deployed them with, uh, with the army along the, the western part of the Iron Curtain, uh, so a lot of it in Germany. Um, and the thought was that you know, the United States had fought a long war. It wanted to bring its troops home, uh, but it was faced with the vast conventional weapons uh, and troop man number uh, superiority of the Soviet Union. So the thought was uh, you equip everyone with, with small tactical nuclear weapons um, that they can use as mines, um, that can be used as nuclear artillery, and that would be used to stop uh, the Soviet advance. Over time, um, that became less popular, not least because the people those nuclear weapons were supposed to defend, uh, predominantly the West Germans, eventually realized what it would mean to fight a nuclear war on their territory. And, you know, that kind of gave rise to the, the old phrase that we will defend NATO to the last German. Um, and so the Germans didn't really like that. Um, and uh, in the meantime, there were advances in, in the precision uh, and the distances of, of strategic nuclear weapons. Uh, so... Eventually, by the end of the Cold War, you had the situation where strategic nuclear weapons provided for, for the main stability and deterrence between the United States and the Soviet Union, neither of which was especially interested in taking new territory. And that's what is fundamentally different today. Uh, over the last so two decades, um, as a result of the presidential nuclear initiatives that Stephen spoke about, the United States has mostly removed tactical nuclear weapons from Western Europe, it certainly removed any interest in using them to uh, to fight wars uh, from from its doctrine, and that also has some practical reasons that 
I think, give some cause for optimism that the Russians are not especially interested in using them on the battlefield, uh, which is that, one, it's not clear just how effective they actually are in, in any kind of conflict, uh, especially not one like uh, the one the Ukrainians are fighting through a sort of small formation. You know, there aren't large divisions of Ukrainian tanks um, reconquering their, their own territory. And you know, maybe just to, to wrap it up there, the other problem that the Russians would face is that if they were to really use nuclear weapons to break through Ukrainian lines, they would be sending their, their own soldiers uh, through that terrain. And that could be rather radioactive, depending on, on the way the weapons were used. And that would mean the Russian military would have to be equipped uh, with, you know, with, uh, with suits that would give them clean air to breathe and not get them in, in contact and breathing in radioactive particles. Uh, and it's unclear that the Russian military itself is equipped that way, uh, or even if it were to have some equipment that the military itself would have confidence that they would actually be protected on, on a nuclear-contaminated battlefield. Thank you for that. Yeah, um, I, I remember reading in my brief time uh, of the Korean War. You know, Douglas MacArthur was, uh, yeah, he was uh, he was definitely an individual who was quite active on that side. And generally, I think the um, the Korean War was a very interesting one. But that leads me to a, a question. Then I, I think I want to to jump to you, Nicole, which is that you know, there's a lot of countries that are observing what's going on. Russia's been a, a leading voice in trying to control or prevent or deter uh, the North Koreans from developing an ICBM or intercontinental ballistic missile, for some of our listeners um, familiar with the terminology. And, you know, but then there's also the continued negotiations with the JCPOA uh, with Iran. Um, now, they've got a lot of domestic internal issues over the um, Masa Amini um, uh, tragic uh, death, but um, what's your opinion about sort of the broader international community in some countries that are sort of got those potential aspirations to develop their own warheads? If they're looking at Russia's usage, their activities, behaviour around it, how do you think that they're sort of interpreting the situation, and, and what should we be? Um, how should we be? I don't know, taking it, responding to it, et cetera. In terms of proliferation crisis that could potentially be sparked from the war, I, I mean, I think that it's, you know, there's a narrative about Ukraine giving up their nuclear weapons. I, obviously, I mean, Ukraine didn't really have control over these weapons um, during the Soviet era, but that has, I think, in, in some countries have factored into calculations about um, the value of having nuclear weapons as a deterrent from any kind of intervention or from any kind of, kind of acts of territorial aggression. Uh, I think one thing that we might see is Russia emboldening certain actors when it comes to um, playing it fast and loose with issues of nuclear security. Um, Stephen and Rebecca Gibbons have already written about this um, in one of their articles. But, you know, Russia's also previously, even before the war, has played somewhat of an ambivalent role towards actions that have been infractions of, of certain safeguards um, from the IAEA and also hasn't really been the greatest enforcer when it comes to that um, and has pursued cooperation with countries even when they have violated certain nonproliferation rules and, and norms. But in general, I think, you know, when you look at the North Korea crisis, North Korea, that is still going on. I mean, North Korea has been um, launching weapons and North Korea has you know, remained adamant to maintain its nuclear program. And now this is compounded with the impasse over the JCPOA negotiations, where Russia in some ways, which is somewhat of a contradiction to its actions in Ukraine, 
hasn't really led to the obstruction of the, the deal. In March, Russia tried to condition um, the, the JCPOA, the return to the JCPOA, which is the Iran nuclear deal, to um, certain sanctions exemptions with Iran. That didn't really go through, and Russia dropped that claim. But since then, Russia hasn't tried to do anything that would completely obstruct the negotiations. If anything, it's been more of the U.S. and the Iranians that have had the issue. So Russia has an important role in that. And in a lot of nonproliferation crises, including North Korea and including Iran, because Russia has relations with these countries. And Russia has um, quite a bit of technical capability when it comes to the Iran nuclear program. And of course, Russia has a, a light water reactor that it operates in Iran. So Russia will remain involved in that. And that's something I think that there has to be addressed when we talk about these issues is what happens to the global nuclear order? What happens to the future of nonproliferation if Russia does use weapons in Ukraine, that um, nuclear weapons in Ukraine or, or uses a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine or even what it's doing in Zaporizhia, which is um, also in, in a big infringement when it comes to safeguards. These are these are contradictions to a lot of Russia's policies elsewhere, but it is something that is concerning because it has implications for wider nonproliferation um, policies. Yeah, and and to that point, um, Stephen, when we first started um, corresponding uh, last year, you know that was over the AUKUS deal uh, and the desire for the Americans, Brits, and Australians to help the Aussies develop their own nuclear powered, at least. In, in, in essence, um, submarines. Now, there is some evidence to suggest that that would lead to nuclear-capable ones to deal with sort of a potentially growing uh, antagonistic China vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan and broadly the South China Sea. But we also saw um, South Korea, you know, developing missile-capable submarines as well, um, and also the Japanese beginning to think about shifting their policy when it comes to militarization. From your perspective, just, you know, how are we seeing a shift not only with sort of antagonistic or pariah states uh, over proliferation, but also allies and partners? Is this just, are we, could we see a, a general, you know, not collapse, but a very, you know, undermining of the NPT, but also from countries that are supposedly ones that, you know, are on our side? Um, just curious if you have any additional thoughts on that or, or to what Nicole said. Yeah, absolutely. So in the survival article, Alex and I uh, made the argument, which I believe we would stick by, that we believe that at this point, despite the transgressions that Russia has made with attacks near civilian nuclear power plants, with nuclear threats, that the NPT still serves the general interest of states. That is, if one is in Argentina, for example, they know that they don't have to worry about Brazil going nuclear because of IAEA safeguards uh, and because of the NPT and vice versa, so they don't need to develop nuclear weapons. Russia in this behavior has not fundamentally changed that. What is worrisome at this point is some things we're seeing. There's talk right now in Japan among some politicians uh, potentially being interested again in nuclear sharing and the deployment of nuclear weapons in Japan. It's not a mainstream view at this point, I think. Others may, may have other comments, but there is talk of that, even though that wouldn't mean independent nuclear proliferation. In South Korea, because of the North Korean crisis, public opinion polls have shown now for a number of years that actually a majority of the South Korean public supports nuclear proliferation, indigenous weapons development, uh, which is very worrisome. And this has gained and picked up a lot of speed uh, in the South Korean media 
uh, among some American political scientists writing journal articles in South Korea and even among some South Korean politicians. I still believe that the provision of the U.S. nuclear umbrella to South Korea uh, is sufficient despite these public polling trends, but it's a little worrisome. And polls that scholars have done in recent weeks even uh, in places like Poland and places like the Baltic states show that these are very nervous countries that are in need of deep nuclear reassurance. So that is worrisome. I want to expand on Nicole's point earlier about things that Russia has done uh, before uh, this conflict, which have not been good uh, for the NPT. One is the additional protocol for the NPT, uh, which was really put forward by the United States and many of its allies, which would allow for essentially more rigorous, unexpected inspections at a greater range of facilities uh, in states. And what Russia has done in the past, for example, uh, is in Belarus, which has refused to take on this additional protocol, uh, Russia helped fund and finance and construct the Astrovets power plant. In the case of Egypt, which is a country which has been found in the past to have fissile material activities, which are not in line with its declared, its declarations to the IAEA, Russia and China as well uh, have been involved in the essentially funding, finance, construction of the Aldaba nuclear facility in Egypt. And so these are types of things, though, that were occurring, I would say, far be, far before the war in Ukraine. And, you know, Nicole pointed out earlier, and it's true, so Russia is involved in about, depending on the percentages you believe, about 75% of global nuclear energy programs worldwide. And so there's an interesting question about, in the future, will Russia be uh, involved in, you know, will it try and have robust safeguards and adherence to the additional protocol and other things uh, as sanctions bite the Russian economy? Maybe it will expand its nuclear energy projects. And that has led some to worry about essentially a parallel uh, expansion of a parallel nuclear market, which may in some ways undermine NPT nuclear safeguards. All that said, Russia's activities are, are scary in some ways, but there's another point, and that is that not every state that sees the activities of Russia and sees them squaring off with NATO is going to be led to want to develop nuclear weapons or think about deterrence or a nuclear umbrella. This has actually increased a lot of emphasis in countries, particularly in the global south, but maybe elsewhere, in nuclear disarmament, countries that are absolutely scared of what they've seen of a potential nuclear confrontation. And so just a couple months ago in Vienna, there was the first meeting of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, also known as the Nuclear Ban Treaty, which is uh, states from the global south uh, who have put forward a treaty, doesn't have a lot of verification provisions attached to it, but essentially banning all nuclear weapons activities. And so I think one of the things that we're going to see moving forward from this conflict is I don't think that we will see the end of the NPT. I think the NPT still serves the interests of states. But I think we're going to see a lot of polarization in the world between states that are more hell-bent on either developing or maintaining nuclear deterrence on some level and states that are interested in nuclear disarmament and how that plays out in international politics and what that means for the NPT and other treaties uh, is going to be a very interesting development indeed. Indeed. Um, it's interesting because as we, I had a conversation with Francis Fukuyama back in August and, you know, one of the things we're touching upon in that one was about sort of 
are we entering a new Cold War? I personally don't think so. Yes, it has features, but China is not the Soviet Union. It's far more competent economically. It's not a you know conglomeration of separate operating states with cultures and sort of identities and such. Uh, and it is a genuine um, you know systemic risk. Is the uh, as um, Joseph Burrell, the head of your um, the EU security, so to speak, high representative for their um, common security and foreign policy, I think is the acronym, uh, said in a speech just this week that China is the systemic risk. So sort of the the potential for countries to align them themselves with either side of this, if you want to say bipolarity we're entering or based on the usage of nuclear warheads is sort of something uh, I've, I've seen being floated around as well. But um, Nicole, given your um, uh, less uh, reduced time, uh, I wanted to come to you and I, and I wanted to enter into sort of the military simulation section, um, which is, you know, to consider the fallout, the scenarios by which that Russia does uh, utilize, um, you know, uh, striking Ukraine or something of a, of a warhead. So there's a, there's an interesting article I read in Survival before uh, when I was studying at size. My my professor pointed out there was an interesting idea that instead of striking uh, Japan itself, they could have, you know, landed the bombs in the bay, in the bay uh, of Hiroshima or Hiroshima Bay, um, as a symbolic idea of what the weapon was capable of and i've seen similar ideas um suggested when it comes to ukraine instead of actually striking in the country they strike somewhere in the ocean or maybe snake island now given your you know about general proliferation and sort of russians perspectives of that what would you say is the is the, the russian response to that would that be something that they're thinking about or as they want to sort of make a statement properly um and and strike a a you know, a, a military strategical site or, or something facility. What's your your initial thoughts on that, um, if you had any? Well, to be honest, I, I honestly feel a little bit more comfortable with the understanding of what Russia, what would prompt Russia to use a nuclear weapon than where they would target it, because I think that's still unknown. I mean, I think that there's certain red lines that you can look to where you where would increase the likelihood of Russia retaliating with a nuclear weapon. But I, in terms of the military planning and, and the, the use of the nuclear weapon, I think that's still to be seen because it does diverge from a lot of their ongoing military tactics um, in, in the war and, and what the use of the nuclear weapon, the use of a potential nuclear weapon, what would that be? Why, why would Russia be using that? And I think one thing is to, to keep in mind is that for Russia, a lot of this, this war is about territorial possession of parts of Ukrainian territory, which it viewed as kind of this extension of this quasi-empire imperial mindset that Putin has had. Um, and Russia's never really viewed this part of the world as, or part or Ukraine as truly sovereign. And this is uh, a longstanding view amongst the Russian elites. But when you think about Crimea, which was so integral to the Russian narrative about this kind of return to greatness, the, the like reintroduction into Crimea after Khrushchev gave it to the Ukrainian SSR. I mean, Crimea is very important. And I think that if we ever did see a loss of Crimea or even the Donetsk and Luhansk, that would potentially trigger um, some type of retaliation. Um, though it's it's really hard to forecast that and to say like definitely that where they would target or what they would use. And I think that that's more of a kind of speculation at the moment. Um, but in terms of the red lines, I definitely think that any kind of significant loss in the East would make the the situation far more precarious and dangerous, and which is a really tragic reality. 
because this is Ukrainian territory. At the same time, Russia views it as theirs. And perhaps, this, of course, this isn't um, recognized by the international community. But that's where I think Russia would draw the line or at least view it some kind of steps of desperation that could result in this type of escalation. So just to follow up on that with the final question for you is we've we've had these uh, demands by the Russians before and these now suggestions by the uh, ever present Elon Musk sticking his nose into into this matter about sort of, you know, what would be suitable, you know, possibilities for a peace deal. Right. And it's the idea that Crimea is is left to Russia. Donetsk and Luhansk a little bit less um, clear. Um, what, what? So you think that Crimea really is that red line, which would which would trigger the potential use of tactical nukes more than anything else, or it's not that you know? And how would the Russian people even respond to that? Because at the moment, it's still very much just a lot of discussion and not much actual movement in terms of policy. You know, we've had the idea that they may be positioned in Belarus or something like that. I was just wondering if you could unpack a little bit more uh, some of those points regarding sort of peace deal scenarios. Well, I think it would be a confluence of factors that could contribute to the potential use of nuclear weapons. Um, And it's not just the loss of Crimea. I think it has to be some kind of calculation within the elite where there is this, this, frankly, desperation, which this is the only way that Russia can reassert itself, but the only way that Russia can save face. I do think that in terms of the domestic environment, it would be very difficult for Putin to come back and justify going into this war, the loss of Russian lives with the loss of the territory that it had before February 24th. And so that's one thing that I think that the, at least with the Russian domestic decision makers have quite prominently in their minds. In terms of the population and public perceptions of the war, it's been hard to gauge Russian public opinion because there's not really independent polling. But I would imagine that it would run counter to the narrative that Russia has sought to kind of um, propagate about its strength and its might, because in many ways, using nuclear weapons against civilians could provoke some type of backlash. I, I think that actually what will be more of a hit to Russian popular opinion and what would be more decisive in changing that would be increasing loss of life. And um, you can look at the experience of the Soviet war in Afghanistan and how actually the return of, you know, dead dead soldiers was one of the triggers that really um, led to the public being much more averse to Soviet involvement. I think that that's the same with the Russian case and, and, and especially with this recent mobilization where they're sending in Russian soldiers who are civilians and don't really have much military training. It's going to cost a lot for the Russian population. And I think that's what they're thinking about more than the, the use of nuclear weapons and how that affects um, the war. I think for them, what's more salient and what's more important is, um, you know, their family members going into war and coming back in body bags. Uh, and everybody, uh, you were listening to um, uh, Dr. Nicole Grzyzewski, who I think I said it right this time. She's a, she's a Stanton Nuclear Security Postdoctoral Fellow at Harvard uh, and the Belfast Centre for Science and International Affairs. So it's been an absolute uh, honour to have her join us. Uh, and I do hope that she can join us back, perhaps for a more Russia-associated discussion in the future. But I want to pivot now to Alex, because um, I, I want to pose the, the same question to you, but given your slightly different background, I was wondering if there was anything you'd add to, uh, to what Nicole just uh, spoke to. Um, or, or anything you, you'd slightly disagree with, or what, how you how you would interpret the question? I gladly. Well, on uh, Russia-specific expertise, I cannot uh, begin to compete with Nicole. Um, so I'll kind of take the opposite approach 
and kind of think about the situation um, and what kind of historical precedents there have been. And kind of one thing that should give us some degree of comfort is that there have been plenty of nuclear armed states that have lost wars, or at least not won wars, um, without then resorting to, to nuclear weapons, right? You had mentioned Korea a bit earlier, where, of course, there was a temptation to use nuclear weapons. Um, and in the end, the United States and the UN forces accepted uh, the well, the current armistice that, that persists, of course. Uh, and you know, there's a long list of, at times, rather humiliating defeats for the United States itself, where, where nuclear use was, was never considered. Uh, maybe another kind of point of optimism, uh, because you mentioned Hiroshima and kind of the use of, of nuclear weapons at the end of the war there, is in the United States in particular and the West more generally, the use of nuclear weapons is generally seen as having forced the surrender of Japan. There has been a bit of a debate among historians about whether that was actually the case uh, or whether it was um, kind of a, a face-saving way for, for the Japanese to point to the nuclear weapons and bow out uh, of, of the war that they had started. Uh, but the real so the turning point came when the Soviet Union announced its entry into uh, into the fight with with the Japanese as well. And the reason I think that could be possibly relevant to the current situation is that the there's a chance um, that in Russia nuclear weapons are not seen as these war ending war winning weapons uh, the same way that we might view them uh, in the West uh, certainly with a more popular understanding of it. No, I think. You know, we're all kind of trying to puzzle through and figure out, are these nuclear threats that we're hearing from Moscow, uh, are they credible? Uh, are they not credible? Is it a bluff? And it kind of reveals the the downside to a, a strategy that the, the current Russian president in particular has taken to international politics over the last two decades or so, which is that you know any any state, especially when it comes to core interests and matters of war and peace, uh, tactically resort to to concealment, to lies, uh, to, to misinformation. But over the last couple of years, um, it seems like at the, uh, the the Russian approach has really been to take lying and misleading to a strategic level, uh, where it's become really difficult. To tell what you know when when the president is speaking, when representatives of the Russian Federation are speaking, um, what are the the clear signals to the West that we are supposed to take seriously and literally? Uh, what are the statements coming out of Russia that are clearly just meant uh, as sort of politics by other by other means, by by confusing the West, by creating plausible deniability? And which of the things that we seemingly know to be entirely false are actually believed uh, in in Moscow? And so, you know, the problem is when the Russian president goes on television and utters nuclear threats, and almost everything that comes before and after uh, seems to be straining credibility. It's really difficult to interpret from the outside what what the purpose of that communication is. And what scares me most about it is that the you know, to the speaker, uh, to the Russian president, he probably thinks in his mind he's been completely clear that the West knows exactly what his red line is, that, yeah, that, that he's being understood perfectly well. Uh, but, you know, sitting in the West, um, I don't think anyone has that, that perfect decoder uh, to really understand what to take seriously and what is simply bluster.
I've got one final question for you both, and I'm going to frame it in sort of, shall we say, my very, very limited, but at least broad understanding of, of, the, of, of what I, why I think the likelihood of sort of nuclear usage is low. But before I do that, I just want to mention this is my last question and then it will be open to everyone. So Heather, uh, I know you were interested in, in, in um, engaging. I'd love to have you join the conversation if you're interested. Stephen, if I come to you first for your thoughts, you know, in my mind, as I say, the propensity for Russia to go nuclear, so to speak, is low because for me, it just doesn't make sense. Putin is first and foremost about restoring Russia to a what he considers to be the glory days of the Soviet Union or, i.e., you know, imperialist Russia. So would he really resort to uh, particularly strategical nukes, which would result in absolute, you know, response by the, the by the West? I mean, it, it's been made clear by uh, Jake Sullivan uh, you know that it would be the results would be catastrophic, right? And and it's not necessarily that they would be nuclear response, but the economic sanctions, continued usage of potential conventional military uh, engagement. You know, it would be things uh, as they are now for Russia would be made ten times worse were Russia to utilize some kind of nuclear uh, weapon. But equally, I just don't see why Putin would want to use a tactical nuke or any form. Uh, of the of, of of the arsenal in an area which he's just sort of annexed, um, he's then got nuclear fallout on his borders or within his borders, depending upon you know if Ukraine take retakes it and stuff. And also, it's some of the most fertile land of Ukraine. And considering Ukraine is a breadbasket, and arguably one of the motivations Russia undertook to sort of retake Ukraine, so to speak, was because of a demographic issue and and generally sort of the importance of keeping uh, NATO as far away as possible via a buffer state, why would you then desolate the country via nuclear weaponry? So for me, just from a strategical and ideological point, it doesn't make sense. But this is someone who we thought we understood, so to speak, somewhat and, and, and wasn't driven by ideology, but clearly is to a certain extent. So Stephen, I'd, I'd just be curious for your take on what what would happen? What's the medium to long term potential implications of this that were to happen? And how would the West respond? Uh, and the last point I'll add to this sort of elongated question is the Americans, as far as I recall, back in February, January, did suggest the you know willingness to engage Russia on relocating some of their nukes in Poland, I believe it is. Um, but also re-engaging over the treaty that they had pulled out of um, under the uh, Trump administration. So, uh, you know, there was a, a desire to try and engage Russia on, on that regard to, to uh, deter them from, from invading originally. But could you just unpack us a little bit more sort of the, the, the potential consequences and, and the Western response and what, what would that look like? Uh, and then maybe we'll come to Alex. Uh, in, in addition, so what I would say, Piotr, is I, in many respects, I, I agree with you. And I think that the use of nuclear weapons by Putin in this scenario is highly unlikely. And I don't want to place a probability on it, though. And that is that I've seen probabilities being placed on this by Twitter armchair analysts, by political scientists and everyone. What I would say is, you know, when we look as well at Russian tactical nuclear weapons, which we know to be in central storage. We haven't seen anything that would lead us to believe that they've been moved. Perhaps Putin is gaining a lot of political credibility, or maybe not credibility, political power and movement here without 
actually using nuclear weapons without making any efforts to use nuclear weapons, although it's unclear what's actually being gained here because the West doesn't seem willing to stop its supply to Ukraine and Ukraine doesn't seem willing to take its troops uh, away. So what do we see here? And, and, and what we really see is, I think, a situation where the signs point to it being unlikely for all the reasons we've had in this discussion that Russia will use nuclear weapons because of limited battlefield utility, other things not mentioned here. It seems pretty clear that China and India will remove any neutrality or support for Russia in the event that Russia uses nuclear weapons. Keep in mind that both China and India have no first use doctrines related to nuclear weapons, and so that Russian use of nuclear weapons would be antithetical to their view on nuclear weapons and for stability. And so I think it would result in much greater isolation for Russia. And people like David Petraeus in the United States have come out and said that there would be massive U.S. conventional retaliation in the United States if it wanted to could quickly sink the entire Russian fleet that is in the Black Sea and there would be consequences. So I think it's unlikely. But we don't know. And it's very risky to pretend that, you know, we know what the likelihood is, because when it comes down to it, even though command and control in Russia, there are others on this call who know much more than I do about that, uh, is complex. Uh, It is highly centralized. What I think as a long term implication that I just want to close with is, let's say that we're all those of us who are predicting this, that is unlikely are wrong about this and that Russia really does use a tactical nuclear weapon. I'm a public opinion polling specialist, and I know that people in various countries around the world think of any use of nuclear weapons as being apocalyptic, cinematic, game-changing, something like that, publics. But let's say that Putin uses a low-yield nuclear weapon that isn't something like Hiroshima, and that is an airburst detonation, and there's reduced fallout or something like that then I think that we have a potential problem. And the potential problem we have is changing sociological understandings of what nuclear weapons and what nuclear war is. And that is this idea of a nuclear taboo since 1945 stems from the idea that nuclear weapons are so absolutely destructive, perhaps war-ending, game-changing. But what if Putin uses a really small weapon, one kiloton or something less than that, Uh, in a battlefield situation. What if the reaction to that isn't horror and isn't terror and the idea of using nuclear weapons becomes more normalized? And that's really scary, not only given what we know the destructive capabilities of nuclear weapons are, but it's really scary when we think about the concept, Herman Kahn and others, of the escalation ladder. If it becomes more normalized to use nuclear weapons, even small tactical nuclear weapons in combat, then when it comes to great powers and otherwise, I think we have a potentially kind of accelerating and growing nuclear escalation ladder. And nuclear deterrence is, is, is an interesting thing. And so my, my viewpoint on nuclear deterrence, I think, is pretty clear. I just today published the editorial in Science Magazine called Beyond Nuclear Deterrence. And my argument is, is maybe you think that we need nuclear deterrence in intersubjective deterrence relationships today. But every time you're doing this, you are gambling. You're rolling the dice on some level. And we have a world in which we have convinced ourselves that countries pointing nuclear weapons at each other, you know, makes us safer, even though, ironically, it's increased our vulnerability. And I would just say, if we were to take the entire Cold War 
and think about probabilities and simulate the Cold War, I don't know, five times, 10 times, 100 times, would we escape the Cold War without nuclear use? I'm not sure. And I think it's unlikely that Putin will use nuclear weapons, but every nuclear threat and every potential confrontation between nuclear armed states is rolling the dice. It's gambling. And, you know, even if you believe that nuclear deterrence is ultra solid, I mean, it is gambling and there are probabilities associated with losing and with nuclear use. And my fear is that if tactical nuclear weapons are used and there isn't a horror reaction, then we've got a lot of problems on our hands. So that's just my general thoughts. I know Alex has thoughts. Heather's here too, but very interested uh, in continuing the conversation. Thanks. Thank you very much, Stephen, for that comprehensive uh, response. And yes, I'm, I'm. For those of you listening on the podcast, this is why I like recording them live because we we've been able to be joined by some extra extra guests, some fantastic people like Heather Williams, who's the director of the Project on Nuclear Issues and senior fellow at CSIS, uh, I think, tank here in DC, just down the road from where I'm recording this, um, and also Sina Azodi, uh, who's studying Iranian nuclear program and is an adjunct professor at GW, which is also down the road. So so um, great to have you guys. But um, just want to pop over to you, Alex, um, for your brief thoughts on on my question. And if you had anything you wanted to sort of, I don't know, expand on from what Stephen said, push back on. The other point I just want to include is also the other reason I don't think that this is going to happen unless it was very, very low yield uh, or something is because um, I don't think the Chinese uh, are, are going to be okay with the Russians, specifically Putin, going to this level. Um, I think we should cast our minds back a couple of weeks to the SCO or Shanghai Cooperation Organization, where Putin had to publicly state that he was aware of the questions and concerns that the Chinese have. Now, Putin is a proud man, and he would never normally do that. So for him to have done that means that he had to have had a very frank conversation with President Xi, who he himself is up for, in quotation marks, re-election. Um, and, and generally, the Chinese have been, you know, wanting to show support with Russia verbally, but in action, not much there. And I do not think that they would be okay with Russia going to that extent. Uh, and, uh, and even, you know, the Chinese would, would draw a red line there based on the global uh, instability it would cause for their interests uh, and economic uh, prosperity. So, um, but Alex, I, I don't know if you'd like to expand on anything that Stephen said. Love to hear your uh, thoughts. Just very briefly, uh, I completely agree that it would make absolutely no sense uh, for, for the Russian Federation to use nuclear weapons. Uh, of course, there are plenty of people who do things every day that don't make sense to me personally either. So I think we have to be a little bit modest and kind of imputing certain sort of cognitive frameworks onto others. Um, and, you know, maybe one underappreciated element that has been in the discussion so far about the ideology uh, that is governing Putin's decision-making and thinking about this is uh, just how proud he is to have been a KGB man, a Czechist. And you know, from some of my work on uh, the fellow Czechists that he worked alongside in East Germany, um, I know that is a fairly well-developed and coherent ideology uh, in which the Czechists kind of think of themselves as these elite protectors who are willing to do things other mortals aren't willing to do that the ends justify any kinds of means and they're certainly always willing to sacrifice uh, the little people in pursuit of these these grander goals um, and maybe just another thought there to i guess push back against some of the the optimism there uh, even though i also completely agree that we're talking about a very low probability case of, of actual nuclear use is that in the end if 
a nuclear weapon is used um, on the Russian side, it will be uh, with Washington as the most important audience in mind. Uh, so one can imagine that uh, the war grinds on uh, for much longer. Uh, the United States is happy to continue to supply the Ukrainians, um, but it becomes a, a difficult domestic situation for Putin. Um, and that at that point, he might be interested in getting the United States um, to really pay attention to to his concerns there. Um, but like I said, the kind of global perspective there really is it makes no sense to use nuclear weapons. Um, to some extent, we've probably paid a little bit too much attention to the issue. And I say this as someone who you know, gets page views on my articles whenever nuclear weapons come up. Um, we should be thinking about the, the non-nuclear aspects of the, of the, the ongoing war uh, much more than we have. Thank you very much for that, Alex. Yeah, I, I think, you know, you, as you say, Putin has done a lot with the American reaction in mind. I think, you know, him pulling the troops up to the border of Ukraine in the first place last summer with the desire to get what he did eventually, the meeting in, I think it was Geneva with Biden, um, sort of was to test him, you know, as he'd just come into into office. Um, but I'd love to come to you, uh, Heather. Thank you very much for joining us. I'd love to hear your thoughts. And if you've got any questions or any points you want to you wanna add to to the conversation on, or anything that we touched upon during the, uh, the broader discussion as well. Yeah, hi. Um, this is Heather Williams. I work at CSIS. I'm assuming you all can hear me, so I'm just going to jump in. Um, I actually have two questions, um, one for Stephen and then one for both. So question for Stephen. Um, I, I really appreciated your comments about the health of the NPT and I agree with you. I don't think we're going to see the end of the NPT. What I'm a bit more worried about is if we see a slow descent into irrelevance of the NPT. And so I was just wondering if you could kind of reflect on that, which isn't, you know, it might not be a bang dramatic end. It might just kind of be a slow demise. And then question um, for both um, Stephen and Alex. And Alex's last point really touched on this. And it's about how we talk about this issue. It feels like every conversation on the topic is saying, well, this is a thing that isn't likely to happen, but let's talk about it. And that, that's not a knock at, at this event. I, I've been writing and talking about it like everybody. But how do we talk about something that seems unlikely, but is still really scary in a way that doesn't further escalate and create panic around the topic? And that's a little bit more of a personal question because it's something I've been reflecting on a lot and would just be really curious what um, Stephen, Alex, and, you know, there's a lot of other experts on this call, if anybody else has kind of reflections on that. But thanks so much for taking my question. Thank you for being here. Um, Stephen, do you want to tackle Heather's uh, couple of questions and then we'll come to Alex as well? I will give it my best shot, although, uh, you know, I, again, think there are a, a number of, of nuclear experts on this call that I recognize who, who probably also have uh, more well-developed thoughts on this than I do. Uh, you know, I, I agree with you, Heather, on, you know, not a southern a sudden end to the NPT on a potential irrelevance to the NPT. Um, and that is, of course, as you know, there have been people who have been writing articles recommending that maybe states should pull out of the NPT uh, in favor of the TPNW to encourage nuclear disarmament, which is not obviously uh, a mainstream position. And at the first meeting of states parties uh, of the TPNW uh, in Vienna, pretty much every state that stood up there, you know, emphasized the complementarity of, of the NPT uh, and, and the TPNW. But one of the things that I find to be 
potentially bothersome in some ways is the idea that, you know, I feel like the NPT in the past has evolved when it has essentially adapted, found ways to incorporate in new members and do things like the additional protocol. Uh, and I feel like that is like an evolution of the regime and is the next step forward. And it's, it's also really interesting, too, as we sit here with having the Iran nuclear deal and the ways in which that may have expanded verification capabilities and how that fear of enhanced kind of targeted verification and, and the state level concept as it relates to safeguards may make the additional protocol as well, you know, less appealing to certain states. But in general, you know, I don't have great thoughts on this, but my fear is, is that if we see states like Russia and China providing essentially a parallel nuclear market to countries that remain outside of the additional protocol, and we see the nuclear armed states continuing to modernize their arsenals, and we see continued expansion, and we see, you know, continued thoughts about uh, the violation, well, not violation, depending on how you view it, but, you know, not adhering to N NPT Article 6 on disarmament, I think we do run into a, a situation where if the NPT exists, and the NPT exists for IAEA safeguards only, and the NPT doesn't become, uh, you know, loses some of its credibility as, as a vehicle uh, for nonproliferation uh, in, in the long run. And we need to look to other alternatives for the development of norms and, and incubation of new ideas. I mean, this is just, you know, thinking uh, on the fly. And I, I think, you know, I will... Uh, you know, be happy to chime in uh, after Alex makes some comments. But I agree with you on, for sure, on the comment about how do we talk about this issue? How do we, you know, stop from scaring people's grandmothers that nuclear war is going to happen? And I get, you know, interviews here in Switzerland from the Swiss media questions almost all the time about this is an unlikely event, but if this event were to happen, you know, is Switzerland uh, prepared with its its bunkers? What would be the effects as far as, as as radioactivity and, you know, and fallout and how many civilian casualties are we talking? And it's absolutely, it's terrifying. And one of the things that Alex and I talked about in our survival article is we believe that one of the main consequences of Putin's nuclear threats and the war in Ukraine is reawakening publics to essentially nuclear realities of our world. And after the Cold War, people, many people besides, you know, the media uh, scholars who study this, even some politicians seem to have forgotten that we have nuclear deterrence relationships and arsenals and there are nuclear threats and that, sadly enough, many cities in the world are half an hour or less away from being destroyed by nuclear weapons. And I think that people are being woken up to these realities by nuclear threats and by punditry and pandering and, and all of these pieces about this is what will happen if a nuclear war happens, even though it's unlikely. And I don't know. And I mean, maybe maybe you have your own personal idea. Maybe others here have ideas. Maybe Alex does. And again, I, I don't think it's, it's a, a knock on this event. But I think that we, you know, as, as a community of nuclear experts who talk about these things, we need to be very clear up front, emphasizing over and over again that this is serious, but it is unlikely and that we need to continuously do it over and over and over again with journalists, for example, that interview us and our own pieces to not, you know, engage in too much fear mongering or scare mongering. And I also think 
holding people in the media responsible who, I mean, how many times have you done an interview? I've done many where I tell someone that something is unlikely to happen. I don't believe it will happen, even though it's a serious risk. And they ignore that. And the headline is something fear mongering and scaremongering. And I think, you know, I, I, I'm personally interested, and I should probably start, in sending follow-up emails to journalists or not working with them again in the future if they're engaged in this type of rhetoric. But I don't know in general how to be softer about that. And maybe Alex has some ideas. Thanks, Stephen, for that great answer. And for everyone listening on the Twitter space, I've um, pinned above the uh, link to Alex and Stephen's article, The War in Ukraine and the Global Nuclear Order. Uh, and that article will also be in the show notes of the podcast if you're listening on the podcast. But Alex, I'd love to come to you uh, and then we'll circle back to uh, Stephen or Heather uh, as well as Sina. Thanks for the great question, Heather. Because you invited a personal response, I'll kind of take that um, that road, uh, which is that you know, I think like many people who've been seized with nuclear weapons for a long time, it took us a while to accomplish that mode shift from before the war where we kind of had to run around screaming at people saying, you know, we still have nuclear weapons all over the place. The danger isn't gone. This isn't just some historical curiosity that we're, we're thinking and writing about every day. And it probably took us a while to kind of catch up to what the, the public state of knowledge was, what we could expect from reporters in our conversations uh, with them. And then sometimes uh, kind of understand the agendas behind people who decide to focus on nuclear weapons um, all of a sudden. So just speaking for me, uh, as a as a German, I've been involved in some policy debates and discussions over there. And it kind of took me a while to figure out that people who were especially interested in inflating the nuclear threat were doing it uh, in part because they were interested in opposing the provision of military assistance to uh, to the Ukrainians, um, which is, of course, a position uh, that they can take. Uh, but then, you know, you, as just an individual expert, you you might feel a little bit used when your quotes are being uh, sort of employed in that way. Um, and I hope I answered that question well enough that you'll forgive me for also taking on the first one, uh, just very briefly in a footnote. Uh, which is that I'm still very optimistic about the the NPT. I don't think a whimper is very likely, mostly because the NPT is actively solving problems every day, solving local security dilemmas uh, that could well break out again if the if the NPT were no longer taken seriously. Um, it solves real problems on nuclear energy and, of course, on technical cooperation, sort of spreading the benefits of nuclear technology to to many countries the world over. Thank you, Alex. Um, Heather, Stephen, I don't know if you guys would like to add anything else um, on this point. We're all working through this on the spot. You know, I, you know, have never had so many members of my family and friends and others who have been interested in these issues and people panicking and things like that. And it's, I think it's really difficult to, you know, kind of try to find the right tone that we're working on an important issue. The issue has existed for a long time. It is, you know, uh, so you know, what we should be focusing on or not. And I, I think Alex's point, too, I just want to say, too, that I really liked earlier, and that is that as much as we work on these issues, nuclear issues, and as scary as they are, there are other dimensions of this conflict at a conventional level that are happening every day that I think are actually much more pressing, and that's worth being emphasized. But I don't, I don't know if you have any more thoughts on this, Heather. Just really interested to, to hear. 
Yeah, I'll just jump in really quickly. I 100% agree with everything that you both said about this. My kind of go-to line to people has become, this isn't the thing that keeps me up at night. Like out of all the nuclear issues in the world, out of all the, you know, unfortunate host of existential threats that we're facing, this isn't the one that I would um, really lose sleep over, though obviously I am still deeply concerned and don't think that we should take these threats lightly. Um, I, I would just pass on something that a mentor recently said to me because I, I've i actually been pretty quiet on the topic because I didn't want to add to the hype. And a mentor recently said to me, no, you actually have a responsibility to try to be a voice of reason on these issues. And so it's it's tricky because it's a balance that you want to be part of the conversation, but it's to make sure that we all do so in such a way that is responsible, doesn't add to the fear. Um, and I, Stephen, I actually really like your idea about following up with journalists if they take any quotes out of context or if they misuse anything you say, because since I've started doing more media on this, that just seems to be what's happening. So I just to say, I, I don't often try to impose responsibilities on other people. But I do think that for a lot of experts on this, that we, we do have an important role to play in just trying to be voices of reason that can strike that balance of saying, this is a very nuclear weapons are a very, very serious business. Any use would have major humanitarian consequences. This remains unlikely for these reasons. But I'll stop there because um like Stephen, I'm also really curious to hear what others on this um conversation have to say. But I also just wanna, you know, really thank you, Piotr, for putting this together. It's a really cool format. So thanks. Absolutely. No, I'd yeah, love to love to have you with us and uh, hope we can uh, host uh, you as well in the future. But um, with that, I'd like to come to Sina. Uh, thank you so much for waiting patiently. But given your your background as well, I'd love to love to have you weigh in uh, if you've got any comments or questions, any pushbacks you'd like to add to the uh, to the panel discussion. Uh, sure. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for uh, taking the question. I'm, I, I'm not an expert on Russia's nuclear weapons. I'm, as, as you mentioned, I'm studying Iran's nuclear program. That's my expertise. I do want to make a comment, but I have a question too. And the comment goes back to what was previously said about Putin and, uh, you know, he has said on, uh, and on his intentions to revive the Soviet Union. He has said previously that who, whoever doesn't mess the Soviet Union, has no heart, but whoever is, intends to revive the Soviet Empire has no brain. Uh, that was the comment, but my, my real question was, and I think Stephen touched on it, that what if Russia, um, just to uh, call the bluff, decides to use nuclear artillery shells uh, on a battlefield? And this is, as, like Stephen said, this is a very small nuclear weapon, uh, low yield, but it calls the bluff of the U.S. And Putin can make the case that, look, you threatened me that I can't use nuclear weapons, but guess what? I am using nuclear weapons. It may not have much use on the battlefield, but I also think that, as I said, it calls the bluff. And, and that's my question. What, what do you think? I mean, uh, what are the consequences? And, and how do you think the U.S. would respond to such a use? And thank you again. Thank you. I would also just add that, you know, there is that there is the element of chemical when the uh, chemical stockpiles found in Syria in 2013. I mean, the response by the Obama administration was very minuscule, wasn't it? And um, and I think there's concern among some observers about would that be replicated again, where Russia 
to do something of a similar sort of ilk. But Alex, um, maybe if we come to you, I don't know if you had anything you want to add to uh, or respond to um, uh, Seema's uh, point. Oh, yeah, very good comment and a great question too. To, to briefly talk about the chemical weapons issue, um, and I think it's somewhat similar to the the problem of fighting a war with with nuclear weapons on the battlefield, uh, which is that you have to protect your troops, um, and that requires equipment that is a really big hassle to to get into place um, or even to fight in. Uh, so often, you know, the, the re- not using chemical weapons uh, in many instances in history has been more about the practicality of almost a tacit agreement between the the two combatants that uh, neither of them really wants to fight in a chemical kind of environment. Um, I think that's also true uh, at the at the nuclear level. And yeah, I mean, I think I kind of you know almost the the petulant toddler uh, kind of use of nuclear weapons of of calling the bluff. Uh, I I can't imagine that happening, but you know, as we've talked about uh, before, there are so many other downsides uh, to to being the first to break the the nuclear taboo um, since 1945 uh, that would bring quite negative reactions we expect uh, from from Beijing in particular uh, and you know certainly would give the sort of license in the West to to ramp up uh, their their own support for Ukraine their own efforts uh, it could be the kind of thing that really, uh, permanently changes the mood in in Western Europe, in particular, and um, thinking especially of of Germany and France here, uh, who have been very slow to move, but mostly move only in reaction to big dramatic gestures, and that would be just the kind of dramatic gesture that might bring on a counter reaction that wouldn't be all that helpful to uh, to the Russian cause in the long run. Stephen, do you have a view on that? I have, uh, you know, I agree with everything that Alex just said. And I mean, I think that Cena uh, raises an interesting point in question. I do think it would be disadvantageous and in many ways have been mentioned uh, uh, in this this call from, you know, from the diplomatic support that Russia would lose from a potential Western reaction as far as supplying Ukraine and a military reaction. But again, you know, we are talking about events and probabilities. We can't see this happening. We think it's unlikely, but it would be highly consequential. And that just goes back to my point again, that when you are talking about nuclear weapons and you're talking about tactical nuclear weapons, some of which may have explosive yields that are higher than little boy and fat man, the bombs used on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you're talking about very serious use of nuclear weapons that can be, uh, in many respects, game-changing. And when we do this, when we have deterrence relationships, nuclear strategy, and nuclear threats, we are consistently rolling the dice with red lines and probabilities and things like that. So we can all continue to say that things are unlikely, but uh, at the same time, again, as my, my further point is, if you simulate the war in Ukraine, a hundred times, maybe Putin doesn't use nuclear weapons. Maybe if you simulate it a thousand times, Putin does use nuclear weapons. And so this is all very scary when we're uh, in the business of talking about nuclear arms, as unlikely as we view these things. And, and not to make joke of it, but I, I think Alex's um, point about perpetual toddler, uh, I was trying to refrain from using that terminology or analogy. But uh, yes, it's uh, pretty much <laughs> one. At least I envisage uh, throwing the toys at the pram. It's very much uh, been Russia's sort of reactionary foreign policy over time. 
Absolutely. Um, I see we've been joined by Pavel as well. Um, Pavel, you, you look like you've got quite a big uh, expertise in um, in this area. I'd love to uh, love to jump to you briefly if you've got any thoughts or comments on, on what we've been discussing uh, recently. Well, uh, thank you. <laughs> that was a, an interesting discussion. Uh, although I, I must first say that uh, there are no artillery shells there. They've been all dismantled. There. They, are, uh, they are gone. Uh, but uh, uh, just uh, one thing that, uh, and especially back to the, uh, the to the uh, points that uh, people mentioned earlier, uh, the kind of uh, how do we frame this? Uh, and uh, I've been uh, trying uh, to make this point, which uh, in my view uh, should be out there. Uh, is that uh, we should not be talking about uh, the kind of a small weapons or weapons over the Snake Island or things like that. We should see uh, uh, those weapons for uh, what they are, uh, and and that goes back to the uh, uh, something that was mentioned earlier uh, about what what if what if the weapon is used and. Uh, Basically, and everybody says nobody nobody gets killed, which is a possibility if you do it high enough. Uh, and uh, how how do we change? How does it change? And uh, my take uh, very strongly is that even a small weapon, even a demonstration weapon, uh, would be a demonstration of what? And that would be a demonstration of a resolve uh, to go ahead and actually use more of those and eventually uh, use uh, those weapons to, as I say, to to kill a lot of people. Uh, because this is what these weapons are good for, quote unquote, uh, and this is what their mission is. This is where they get their power. It is really a competition. The, the nuclear deterrence is a competition in who has the capability and who is prepared to kill more people. And uh, that, the point here is that you don't get into that competition. You don't and definitely don't want to be in that competition with the, the current uh, Russian leadership. Uh, so uh, and that that stigma should be there. We we should again our responsibility as experts is uh, ex- exactly not to try to come up with scenarios, uh, calculate uh, what size of uh, what size of weapon you would need, quote unquote, to uh, destroy a certain city. Uh, we should be making that point very clear that uh, these are <coughs> these are. Uh, weapons uh, that uh, are not really good for anything but uh, killing a lot of people. And I, I think that's, uh, if we frame it that way, uh, I think uh, that is where, uh, this is this is our power to, to stop their use, to prevent their use, because this is, you stigmatize, you, uh, you delegitimize uh, the very thought of nuclear weapons. And we've seen that that kind of uh, uh, pushback uh, in fact, uh, even even the Kremlin is not in, impenetrable. They they do uh, they do feel that kind of attitude, and they uh, they do go into uh, this uh, protective mode. Like no no no, this is all only if uh, the very existence of the state is in danger and things like that. Thank you, Pavel. I think a lot there to to reflect on. I'd like to say thank you very much to everybody who's been joining uh, this conversation on the Global Gambit, particularly to my guests, Stephen, Alex and Nicole, who left us slightly earlier, but also from our uh, other guests, um, Heather 
uh, and Sima who were able to join us and provide some really interesting perspectives and then also Pavel. Upcoming we do have a conversation with Christopher Miller, the Ukrainian correspondent for the uh, Financial Times and a couple of other exciting things concerning uh, the events uh, in um, Afghanistan. Uh, But that's been it on this episode of the Global Gamba. I'm Piotr. Thank you very much for listening. Take care everyone. You were listening to The Global Gambit. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, subscribe and leave us a review. We would especially appreciate it if you left a comment on why you valued this episode and what you took away from it. Doing so helps us to be discovered by new listeners who would really enjoy our content. Want to support us further? Do so by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash The Global Gambit where you can get additional perks and even be featured in upcoming episodes. We actively invite you to follow and engage with us on social media at The Global Gambit. Got any feedback or suggestions, such as potential guests? Get in touch at theglobalgambit at gmail.com. Lastly, don't be shy. Download the Clubhouse app, listen in in real time, and even participate with questions or comments to the guests and host Piotr. But until next time... This is The Global Gambit.